Welcome to Midlife AF. I am going to introduce you to the one, the only, me (laughs) in this episode. And I hope it's not too long-winded, but I'm basically going to take you through how I got from being a corporate marketing mum of two kids working full-time to a broken wreck (laughs) on the floor having to build herself up again from scratch and then what happened for me and what's changed and how I ended up becoming a counsellor and alcohol coach and I hope that through this process you will see how universal all our struggles and concerns and worries are because I know we're all individually wonderfully magical but When we talk about issues with midlife, when we talk about issues with alcohol, when we talk about struggles with neurodiversity and we talk about worrying about our teens and what they're going through and our relationships with our partners and what it means when we stop drinking, we realise we're all the same. And that's where the strength comes. And so... I hope you enjoy this first session. If you've got any questions, we're going to have a questionnaire in the show notes. And I would love, if you want any topics for me to cover on this podcast, I'm definitely going to do one on teenagers post this. And drinking, you know, what we should, how we should be behaving around our teenagers with alcohol based on the research. But for now, sit back, enjoy, and I hope you relate. All right, my love. Take care. If you're a woman in midlife whose intuition is telling you that giving booze the elbow might be the next right move, then Midlife AF is the podcast for you. Join counsellor, psychotherapist, this naked mind and grey area drinking alcohol coach Emma Gilmore for a weekly natter about parenting quirky teens, menopause, relationships and navigating this thing called midlife alcohol free. If you're feeling that life could be so much more, that you're sick and tired of doing all the things for everyone else, if your intuition is waving her arms manically at you saying, it could all be so much easier if we didn't have to keep drinking, come with me. Together we'll find our groove without booze. In this episode of Midlife AF, we're going to ask the question, how the hell did I get here? So I was a 20-year-plus corporate marketing manager and now I am a counsellor, psychotherapist and grey area drinking, disnaked mind, alcohol coach. A changing career that happened over the last something between 2019 and now, last three years. And stopping drinking has been a big part of that for me. What I wanted to do is just take you back to the last sort of year that I was drinking and a couple of things that happened that led me on the path to deciding that I was going to take a break from alcohol. And then a little bit about my background, my journey to the place where I decided to stop drinking and where we are now. So I'm sure you will relate to much of this story 
as I say to all of my clients, <laughs> although we are magically and wonderfully individual, our stories are universal. And this is really important because there's so much shame and stigma around seeking help with problematic alcohol use, but there shouldn't be because 90% of people have problematic alcohol use and particularly for women in midlife. I could list for you the reasons people drink on a hand. They would all be the same and there would be nothing to do with alcohol. It would be everything to do with the stuff that's going on for a middle-aged woman in midlife. So here we go. Picture this. We were having a beautiful party. We're a massive party household, and this would have been in 2019. So we're having a very big party, and we had DJ sets. We would have invited all our friends, everybody in Winstown, to come there, and there would have been lots of, alcohol and other things and we would have been having a great time and so it kind of got to the end generally our parties because we had young kids so generally our parties were during the day because that meant as our kids were growing up that we could bring kids along the kids along and they could play and do whatever while the parents got smashed and danced and sung and let their hair down generally but anyway on this particular day I knew I was coming to the end of my drinking and I'll give you a bit of backstory to that in a minute but I had already had a lot of thought about alcohol wasn't serving me and it was making me feel crap and I'd done a lot of for a few years I'd been doing like dry July, Feb first, sober October but I'd always found them to be absolutely horrendous <laughs> and I resented every second that I was doing them. In this particular afternoon, it was late afternoon, early evening, and I was putting my kids to bed. My eldest child was 11 at that time, and I went in to put him to bed, and he said, Mum, can you please leave that glass of wine at the door? Because it makes me anxious when you bring alcohol into the bedroom when you're putting us to sleep. And I registered it. It hit me you know, physically hit me, but I was quite drunk. And so I carried on putting them to bed and it sat there in my soul, like so many of these things do. And you push them away and you try to make them not mean anything, but they do, you know, you know in your soul. And it makes you sad. So that had happened earlier in that year. I'd gone camping with some friends and we always used to go camping that was kind of what we did to socialize and go on holiday with our friends it was very much part of our family dynamic and we'd go often with groups of sort of 10 other families and everyone would get quite drunk the kids would play together and we'd have a really nice time but it was definitely alcohol focused for me and I think most of the people who were there as well and on this particular occasion, I had gone through, just been through some quite traumatic stuff, which I'll go into in a bit more detail as we go along. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go because I was feeling ashamed, as 
what had happened to me. And this was about the end of my career and a breakdown that I had, which I like to call, because I like to copy Brenner Graham, I like to call it my spiritual awakening, but in reality it was just this deep feeling of loss, depression, shame, so many things. And I didn't want to go because I didn't want to speak to people about it and I was forcing myself to go and I think it was a big Funny enough, I say it was a big wake-up call, but it, this was in sort of probably April, May time, and I didn't actually stop drinking finally until the following January, the following year. But anyway, I noticed this because it was a change in behaviour for me, and we were packing up to go, and I always found camping stressful. My husband would get stressed. There'd always be this big competition between the guys about who would get their tents up first and who would leave, and my husband would get quite cranky and. I felt that in my, like so many people who drink, I felt that in my nervous system. So I felt very porous and I was feeling very vulnerable. And on that morning, in order to get me through, I went and drank some gin, chugged some gin. And then I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And anyway, that night we'd been sat around drinking in the evening. Not been too big a night or anything, but I was taking a few meds at that stage because I was going through a bit of a, mental health period, really low mental health. And I had some sleeping pills. And so I took a sleeping pill that night and I went to bed and I slept suddenly until the morning. And then in the morning I got up and I went about the campsite, said hi to everyone. And my friend said to me, my God, I can't believe that you slept through all that last night. And I was like, slept through what? And she said, well, your kids were screaming in the tent. They thought there was a spider in the tent. Now, my kids are neurodiverse and things that they're frightened of. They have very high anxiety and spiders are a very big phobia for them. And she was like, I had to go in and help them and settle them down and they just were completely zonked. And I remember that feeling of shame again. I was like, oh. And I just brushed it off. You know, like you do, even though you know in your soul that your soul's hurting and you don't feel in line with how you feel like you want to be being as a human being. And I remember thinking, oh, she always has to, that one, she always has to mention how drunk I be. <laughs> Instead of taking on what she said, I sort of made her sort of bad guy about it, which is very common, I think. We deflect off, don't we? You don't want to hear. And then probably the last of the sort of incidents as such, you know, obviously there have been incidents throughout my life. <laughs> but in the lead up to my first taking a year off, which was what I did in January 2020, I had been around a friend's house and it was a very chilled out event. You know, some people weren't drinking, some people were. We were watching the aptly named Wine Country. And... If we had maybe, I probably had a bottle of wine, maybe a bit more. My friend who wasn't drinking was driving me home and I had my oldest child with me and he was hanging out with my friend's kid. So they were going to just hang out together while the mums watched the movie, had a few drinks and then went home. But unfortunately for me, what happened was as I was walking out of their house to go and get in my friend's car, I stumbled 
and fell straight into their rose bush. Now their rose bush, it was, you know, when they cut back a roses ready for, you know, kind of the next bloom or whatever it is. So it wasn't all covered in roses and like leaves and stuff. It was sort of gnarly, very old, it's an old rose bush kind of stumps of branch. And that was what I fell into. And I fell into that in a way that it stuck in my throat and it was right next to my jugular. And being, you know, a bit drunk, I was like, oh, I'm a fine. And my child was there. And he was like, mum, you're bleeding. You need to go to the hospital. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Luckily, my friend was a nurse who was there. And she said, no, Emma, we need to go to the hospital because you can't have a piece of branch stuck in your neck because it's very dangerous, particularly where it is, but just also being a piece of branch stuck in your neck. And so my kid had to stay at my friend's house while we went to the emergency place. This was quite late at night. And I was really quite drunk. I realised how drunk I was when I was sort of there because I was coming in and out of consciousness. And my husband showed up. He was so angry at me. We had planned to have a family weekend away, and so we had to cancel that. And then he and I had to go in an ambulance to another hospital. And they had to keep me in for the whole weekend because of the proximity to my jugular. So they got all the, you know, all the debris out and all of that. And eventually, at the end of the weekend, I got discharged. And on my notes, it said pissed, which for those of you who are not from Australia or the UK, means drunk, fell into a rose bush, which was pretty unprofessional, but also incredibly mortifying. And at this stage, I would have been, I don't know, 47, something like that. And it was just another one of those little, you know, these little things. That's why it was, it's never like massive rock bottom. It's like these little tiny cuts on your soul that just say something's not right here this isn't how things should be there's something going on this doesn't feel right so a whole heap of those things went on for me for a very long period of time I'll give you some background now so those are kind of the three things that sort of really culminated and all during this time I was taking you know doing fair July, October, and so on. And we just need a few different things to happen to start, we start to notice. And I think the other thing that was happening for me at the time was, and we'll go into the whys and wherefores of this, but every time I drank, which, you know, sometimes I'd only be drinking during the week, you know, not during the week, just at the weekend. So I'd go for long periods of time where I'd just drink weekends. And then occasionally I'd just fall off for a bit and do, you know, go rogue for a few weeks and drink after work. But generally, you know, I had a really good job. I wasn't, you know, no one of my work colleagues would have realised. And really it wasn't so much what other people thought about me or the level of what I drank. I mean, what I would drink would probably be considered normal drinking. And we drank a lot at the weekends, like absolute heaps. 
And the aim was to get obliterated. But we also thought we really enjoyed the drinking. But it wasn't that sort of, and this is the problem with alcohol. It's never, it was very rarely in most people's lives, it's not, I've lost my home, I've lost my family, I'm on the streets. It's, I'm holding down a great job. I run three times a week to everybody else, my drinking that's completely normal. But I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm full of shame and I'm hating myself. And this does not feel like how life should feel. And that was where I was. So just to give you a bit of background about me, I was born to two lovely, beautiful parents and I had a sister, a little sister. My dad grew up in Africa. His dad worked at the post office. And we were based in the UK. And when we were seven years old, I was lucky enough that my parents moved to Zambia in Africa. And so I did my primary school years in Zambia, Botswana. And then when I turned 11, my mum and dad moved to Nigeria and I went to boarding school in England, which I thought was the best thing since sliced bread because... I thought it was going to be like Mallory Towers. And it pretty much was like Mallory Towers. (laughs) And so we used to go and visit my parents for the holidays in Africa. And there was pretty wild social life for the teenagers, the expatriate teenagers. We had a very good time. And to give you some background, my family are drinkers. Nothing that you would consider to be excessive, except, of course, it totally is. My grandparents would, when we'd come around to them, you'd get a gin and tonic or a gin and chinzano, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning to start the weekend off. And everybody drunk, you know, drunk. You know, it was all sophisticated drinking, you know, aperitifs, wine, liqueurs. But it was drinking much more than would be considered the recommended amount of alcohol. And we were also brought up in a family that loved travelling. And so when we were little, before we moved to Africa, we used to go to France every year for our holidays. And we would always have, you know, a little bit of wine for the kids or like a tiny bit of wine. So it was part of, we were part of that generation, which was all about, you know, if we give our kids a taste of alcohol early, they're much less likely to be silly with it when they're older because it won't be like a forbidden fruit, which makes total sense, except that now the research shows that that's absolutely not the right thing at all. And actually all the research now shows that the later kids get their hands on or get introduced to alcohol, the better it is for their long-term well-being with alcohol. And there's loads of studies on that, which we can put in the notes. But yeah, the less we can introduce our kids, not having it at home, not giving them it to take with them is all a much better thing to do with our teenagers. And we should actually do another episode on the research and what it says about how we should be with our kids around alcohol, because that's a really important one. I'm going to make a note of that. But anyhow, that was the way I was brought up. And my parents drunk every night. I don't ever remember there being a night where they didn't drink. But I don't remember it really being excessive, but I do remember them having parties and lots of silliness. And that was definitely what being a grown up was. And 
as a teenager for me, I remember starting drinking and I remember starting drinking when I was, I remember my first drink was, what's it called? That awful stuff, Malibu. <laughs> my parents had gone out for the day. I think they'd gone to something and there was me and my sister at home. My sister was watching something on TV and I just went into my parents' bar because I had a bar in that t- at that time. It was the 80s. People had bars. <laughs> And I drank a bottle of Malibu and I was sick as a dog and it was my parents really angry with me because they were going out somewhere afterwards. So I had to go around to someone else's house and be everyone had to be on like vomit watch. And anyway, that was my first splash with alcohol. But when I decided and I made a very conscious decision to start changing my persona from someone who was introverted and shy because as a child I was very bookish and mum would invite people around to play with me and I'd go off and read my book and in the nicest possible way it was made very clear to me from an early age that going off and reading your book when people came around wasn't the right thing to do and I always remember being disorganized and I was always getting into trouble for being late or forgetting things and not having the right things and that now I know is part of my ADHD and we can come back, we'll come back to that later. But it was, I knew that I, as a human being, was loved, but I didn't fit in. And I think this is a thing that people often feel, people who drink and often people with ADHD. Never, I was always on the outer, never quite part of the reason. I have friends, I was happy enough, you know, but I knew there were certain things about me that didn't quite fit the mould and weren't quite how everybody else was. And then it particularly came to light for me. So I went off to this gorgeous Mallory Towers boarding school and I met this lovely little friend in my first year and we were having so much fun. Everyone else was probably a bit more mature. There was the odd person smoking, this, that and the other. I know, smoking at Mallory Towers. Who'd have thought it? But, <laughs> but I was young and I was playing with my friend and we used to just hang out every lunchtime. We'd go and sit in the grass and we'd make up things. And it was very young, very sweet, very naive. And then out of the blue, she dropped me as a friend and went off with another girl. And it was heartbreaking. And it sounds like such a strange thing for it to be heartbreaking because, you know, we have breakups all the time. But it was heartbreaking to me. And I didn't know what to do then. I was like, oh, no idea what to do. And so I decided to reinvent myself. And I decided to reinvent myself very consciously. It's a bit of a rebel a bit wild, a bit impulsive, and I was friends with everybody. You know, I was like trying to be friends with everybody. And, look, I had a great time. The people I hung out with, we mainly smoked, we mainly drunk. We'd go around to one of the day girls' houses and be able to hang out there, watch Freddy Krueger and Amityville and scare ourselves stupid while smoking marble lights and drinking. God knows what, probably, God, I can imagine, something horrendous I meant and that was it. And then I moved up through into school. I went to a boys' school for my sixth form, which was very nice for me in that I had lots of attention and boyfriends and I drank a lot. We were basically allowed to spend most of our free time drinking and hanging out. There was really nobody looking after us at all. <laughs> Funny enough, of course, I didn't do very well in my exams because I'd spent all my time having boyfriends and getting drunk. So that was how I spent 16, 17, much to the dismay of my parents, as I then ended up getting very bad grades. And so I decided to take a year 
and go and do a foundation course in art and design, which I absolutely loved. And then I went on to uni. And uni was good. I didn't drink in uni at all, actually. But I did start, and I had had very disordered eating. So I had disordered eating. I had bulimia at school, at um, high school. And that was a control thing, I think, for me, trying to have some control over things. I was trying to study really hard. And, yeah, it was something I was doing with another girl as well. And I will come into this much more as we go through because I have many, many and I've done a lot of work around eating disorders, disordered eating and body acceptance and so on. But yeah, when I went to uni, it was the first time I really had control over the food I ate. And I started to heavily restrict my food. I think I was eating one sandwich and one apple a day. And gosh, I got complimented for how I looked and how I changed. So by the end of the first term at uni, I had dropped a lot of weight. I was studying art and film and TV. And we didn't drink, though. We didn't drink. We didn't drink at all. We might have smoked a bit of, you know. And we went to partying as well. I started to party for the first time. That was only really at the end of uni. We started to go get onto the rave scene. Mainly nightclubs, actually, in Leeds. And that was where I had first introduction to drugs. And that was kind of really different. And again, but again, no drinking, no drinking at all. And then I came out of uni and I moved up to London. Oh no, I went to another. This is what he didn't tell the whole story, but I went and did my master's and in fine art and psychoanalysis, which is a tenuous link with why I've ended up studying the mind. And then I moved up to London and I got a job working for Warner Brothers and I was so happy. I was in Soho. I'd walk to work every day from my shared house and I'd just be like, oh, my God, Emma, you have totally made it. This is the dog's bollocks. And I would just love walking through Chinatown and just everything was, there was a lot of substances and there was a lot of, uh, alcohol and there was a lot of fun and we worked really hard and it was sexy because it was movies and to go to premieres and it was just wonderful we were in Leicester Square and it was London it was the 90s and it was amazing and I met my husband-to-be in house share when I was there and we got into the rave scene in a big way so we used to go on holidays to festivals we'd go to the greek islands and go to festivals five-day festivals things like that we'd get absolutely off our heads and we'd have a great time and i had done senior jobs so did he so did all our friends but in between you know we'd go on our holidays would be party holidays you know we'd go to thailand we'd go to copenhagen and we would have the most amazing times, but we would be completely inebriated all the time. And I remember for millennium, me and my husband turning up at my friend's place in Thailand, in Copenhagen. And Copenhagen was completely full of, you know, completely full. And we turned up and we ended up sleeping in her little house in the Thai village that she lived in with her boyfriend. And it was just a crazy time crazy time and in between all of this I was going to work and loving my job and getting better and better and doing more and more and getting promoted and you know but every night we'd be before we had kids we'd be out drinking beers after work and that was what we did and all our gang did that and then at the weekend we'd just hang out in the pub so it was all about drinking and 
it's interesting now I think back on it as well and I talked about this a lot I had a lot of anxiety as a kid I didn't realize it was anxiety at the time but I think because we lived in quite dangerous countries and there was quite a lot of stories that used to go around about things that used to happen to people when they get robbed I was a little bit fearful of night at night I'd always been fearful at night now funny enough both my kids are I'm very, very fearful at night and scared of the dark and have a lot of anxiety. And I remember being so scared of the dark that in my teens, when we lived, we lived in Brazil for one year just before my dad got made redundant when I was about 16. And I remember lying on the floor in the bathroom, sleeping there with the door locked because no one in the family would let me come and sleep in my bed, <laughs> which is funny because that's kind of where my family are at now. But anywho, cut a long story short, we decided to have kids. And I think the reason I decided, I, I could never quite get my foot where I wanted to get in my career. I kept getting promoted and I was in middle management and I was got heads of and things like that. But I could never get where I wanted to be a director and I couldn't get there. And so I decided, and this is literally how it went, to have children. <laughs> I was like, well, if I can't do this, then I'm like, student, let's have children. <laughs> And I think before that, I hadn't really thought about having children at all. I wasn't really in my game plan. But anyway, then I became a mum. And at this time, it was the global financial crisis. And it was the first time all my friends had gone back to work and they'd got three days a week and been able to work from home one of those days. And I went back and they went, no, it's a global financial crisis. If you want to come back to work, you have to come back to work full time. So there I am. By 36, I think, something like that, 35, 36, new baby, working full-time. had to put my new baby into a nursery, and there was quite a lot of logistics around that, and then getting into work in the morning, and then, you know, the expectation of work and so on. But it was fine. It was great. And I think at this time, me and Damien had decided we wanted to move to Australia, so we had started the process of trying to get our visas to move to Australia because we decided we didn't want to keep living in London and we didn't want to move to anywhere else in England. So we were like, well, should we learn Spanish? And then we had tried that. We couldn't. We went. <laughs> we didn't progress, usually because we got so drunk before the lesson. But we did end up getting our visa to Australia, which was fantastic. So we were about to go and then we couldn't sell our house because of the global financial crisis. So we ended up staying for another year, having our second baby, and in retrospect, it was really a good thing because we packed up all the house and we stayed in a lovely house. And I was able to spend a lot of time with my mum and dad, which was really helpful because as we flew out here via Thailand, my dad passed away from a stroke and very suddenly. And I'd loved, I'd, I'd got to spend all this lovely time with him while we were packing up the house and we'd had both the babies and they had to spend plenty of time with them as well. And so here we were in Australia and when we started, I took a year off to settle the kids into school and Damien got a job straight away and we got a nice house in Williamstown and we were ready. We are having a lovely time and I was trying to meet all the people and do all the things so I could make some new friends. And then a year in, we decided it was time for me to go back to work and I couldn't find anything part-time. And I actually found it really hard to find work here because I hadn't been in Australia. And because the type of marketing I did was sort of retail marketing, there was an expectation that people would have had 
experience working in Australian retail. So I ended up getting contracts, six-month contracts, one-year contracts, which were wonderful. But for someone like me who seeks my validation externally, I'd always, my job had been hugely important to me in the UK. I loved it so much. I put it before everything. I felt like I was always on trial in these jobs and I was always trying to get the permanent position and I very rarely did. So it was quite stressful, like having to be on show every day trying to get the role that may or may not have been there and trying to get kids into nursery school before you left for work. And at that time, I was holding myself up to much higher standards than I do now. But I try and, like, you know, leave the kitchen deck clear, get my kids into school. And at this time, I didn't know my kids were neurodiverse. And so things got quite tricky in terms of that. And also, because I was working for big global companies, even though I was in contract roles, I was still had, you know, reasonably senior roles where I had to be talking to people in the US, in the UK, constantly. So I was having calls all through the night and I'd have to sort of almost pretend that I wasn't a woman with a family and children. And to be honest with you, a lot of the time I wished I wasn't a woman with a family and children so I could be one or the other because I felt so torn between the two. And then, you know, things got tougher you know, trying to get out of the house and stuff. We didn't realise at the time that the reasons that we had to go through so many routines and rituals with my youngest child was because she's autistic. But at the time it was like, what's wrong with me? Why can't everybody else get their kids out of school? And why am I always missing the train, being late to work? And just it just stress, you know, by the time you get into work in the morning, you're just like, oh, my God, I have done three of the people sitting next to me today. <laughs> But anywho, I love my jobs and I love what I did. I was so lucky to work for the companies that I worked for until I had a couple of toxic bosses. And at that time, it sort of became obvious to me how fragile I was, how brittle I was from running. Because that's the other thing, like three years, I think I was just before I turned 40, I started running. And I'd run with a group of friends and we'd do half marathons. And once I ran a half marathon by mistake, <laughs> I was supposed to be doing a 10k and I stayed on and did a 21.5 <laughs> but I was pretty fit so I was pretty fit and I was drinking what people would drink you know I was getting smashed at the weekend but so were all my friends we'd go around to people's houses or we'd go to a you know some sort of place that had an outside and the kids would run around and we'd drink and I had no idea how brittle I was becoming from living in this state of high anxiety, looking for at work for someone to pick me, always trying to be perfect, always trying to be the best, always trying to, you know, and just always feeling on the outer again, that's an ADHD thing, I think, but and just the stress of it all, just feeling like you couldn't do it all and you had to pretend, kept pretending that you were a different person than who you were. And the other part of it was that everything we did revolved around alcohol there was nothing if somebody had said to me do you want to do something that didn't involve alcohol I'd be like no thank you I don't want to do that so alcohol became my hobby and I wasn't unique in this this was I was alone in this at all and then I had two toxic bosses one and you say like you know one might be a coincidence too but 
you know, I don't believe that. I think there's a lot of toxic people in workplaces. And if you're a person whose validation comes externally and how you're perceived at work is incredibly important to you, it is devastating. And for an externally validated, you know, someone who thrived on external validation, it was crippling. And the first one, it was okay. I managed to get through it. I was ashamed. I tried, you know, I had to leave and I, I had to start again another job that I also hated. And then I finally managed to get myself back into a job and in the line of work that I really enjoyed. And it was all going so well again. And I got the job of my dreams and it was, you know, I was up for promotion. Everything was wonderful. And then a new boss came in. And I think I must have been a threat to her or something, but yeah, she made my life hell. And she just did everything, all the classic things that people do. She sort of ostracized me. She questioned everything. She made me feel like a child. She wouldn't let me do anything without just, anyway, it was horrendous. And within a really short period of time, she alienated me from the rest of the team because they were all terrified that she'd do the same to them. And also I'm older, you know, like I can't, I, it was very difficult for me to put up with this kind of thing. I think when you're younger, sometimes you can do it. But I was just like, I'm not putting up with this. It's not acceptable. The way she's speaking to me is an absolute joke. You know, and she'd be hammering her hand on the desk and I'd just be like, are you, are you serious? Are you actually doing this? Because this really isn't as big a deal. And, you, you know, do we have to be like this? Does this need to be so aggressive? And so anyway, I won't go into the detail of it, but. It all got too much. I couldn't believe it because I've never given up on anything before. I'd always been, if I keep trying, if I keep striving, I'll get there. But in this case, that wasn't the case. And that was a big learning for me. It's not always to keep striving, to keep pushing through. And I found in both those situations, the more that you do that, the worse it gets. And I ended up going to my doctor. I was pumped full of Valium just to be able to get in the door. And in the end, I just couldn't do it. And I remember saying to my husband, I can't do it. Because the first time I'd had something like that, and it was a few years before, and I said to him, he said, no, you can't leave. And it broke my heart. And I was just, I had to stay there. And it was so awful. And then this time I said to him, listen, I have to leave. And it's going to have a massive impact on my career because Melbourne's such a small place. The companies that I work for are there. Everyone knows everybody. And I used to. If somebody, anyone came for an interview from me from a company of somebody I knew, I'd phone them up and say, what was this person like? And if you had two people at an interview and one of them was someone who hadn't left because they'd been British, <laughs> one of them was, which one would you pick? So I knew it was the end of my, I knew that leaving that building that day, having a panic attack and making up my mind that I wasn't going to go back was the end of my corporate marketing career. And I also went into a lot, we went into kind of battle with legally and it was just really unpleasant and I was broken. I was so lucky. I had a friend who shared a beautiful friend that she had who was able to support me through the process because otherwise I would never have done what I did and stood up to them. And luckily I did because it worked out really well for me. But it, it was a really unpleasant process and I was very, very broken after it. A bit like when you stop drinking and you're like, well, who am I now now that I'm not drinking? It was very similar. It was like, who am I? 
now that I'm not this person that I've been striving to be all my life, this is everything I've been striving to be. And now I'm not that person. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what it means to be something else. And so I did a course with the lovely Lisa Kordoff called Ready for Change. And we did some values work, which is something that I use very heavily in my work as well. And it became clear to me that actually my corporate marketing roles had been working in objection to or you know the opposite of my values. And this is a time, I think, when I started to build myself back up again. So I, I started to practice. I wasn't working. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was very lucky that I got some money from my insurance company and that was able to keep us okay. So I very much recommend having that insurance cover for if something goes terribly wrong like this, which it did for me. And... Then I started following my values. I started trying to work out what I wanted to do. Couldn't quite work it out. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to be a counsellor. First of all, I wanted to counsel youth because my kids were young people. And I thought that would be a really good thing to get into because everybody's kids, you know, we've always plenty of mental health issues for kids. And then as I got, I went along, I decided that it wasn't actually kids that I wanted to help. It was parents. And so I continued doing my counselling and I was building myself up and I was feeling pretty good apart from the fact that I was still drinking. And I was, as I said, I was running, I was well, but I wasn't well because I was still not sleeping properly and I was still not liking myself. And my relationship wasn't very good at all and that was making me really unhappy too. And I knew in my soul Somewhere I knew that stopping drinking was going to be the thing that needed to happen for me. And so I stopped drinking in January 22, 2020. I had been reading The Snake of Mind and I had been listening to The Snake of Mind's podcast and I took probably three months off from trying to stop drinking and I just listened to podcasts and ran every day and listen to podcasts around every day. So I had Annie's going through my mind. And then in January 2020, I decided I was going to take a year off after New Year's Eve, and I joined this Naked Mind live alcohol experiment. And about two weeks in, I had an absolute mind shift, and I decided I wanted to become a This Naked Mind coach because, and I'll tell you about the details of my mind shift and stuff in another episode, but I decided I want to become a disnaked mind coach and study that alongside my counselling degree that I was studying at the same time. So I did that. I was lucky. I got in there. It was very expensive to do the coach training and all my friends were like, I really don't think this seems really bad. But I started to listen to my intuition and this is everything to me and this is what this podcast is going to be about. And what this, what I hope to share with you guys about my experience of being alcohol-free is that I started to listen to my intuition. My intuition said me something's wrong. Something's not right. We need to change something. And I think it's going to be this. And my husband was great. We took some money out of our mortgage and I paid for the course and I paid for my counselling course as well. And that really is I set myself up as a business in January, you know, September 2020. But I didn't really start coaching until the end of that year. 
And I've been coaching for three years since then. I coach in the Snake in Minds PATH program and their alcohol experiment. And I'm a registered and certified coach with them. I'm a senior coach, actually. I have trained as well with the wonderful Jolene Park, who will be on one of the next podcasts, so that I also have the body part of working with people who are drinking because their nervous systems are dysregulated, their lives are hard, they feel stressed, they've got so many thoughts going on in their heads. The only way that they can sit down and stop the thoughts is to have a drink. And that's what they think. And that's what I thought until I learned a different way. And the work that I do now is very much about the unconscious and it's very much about bringing the mind and the body together to learn to regulate our nervous systems, reaching to our inner child, looking at our shadows, trying to understand why things trigger us, basically trying to understand the reasons why we drink because it's never about the booze. It's never about the booze. We drink to regulate our nervous systems and our nervous systems are dysregulated for a whole heap of reasons. Some we know about, some we don't know about. And there's so much cultural conditioning in there as well. But I think I should stop now as I've been talking for 50 minutes. (laughs) But I just wanted to share with you my journey so that you understood the lived experience that I've had and got to know a little bit about me and my family. And you will know more as I go through because my purpose is to remove the shame and stigma of seeking help for alcohol. It's also to support women in midlife, wherever they may be, and to shine lights on neurodiversity. And also I have kids who are neurodiverse but I also have kids who are gender diverse and so that's something that will come up in the conversations as well and so I wanted to introduce myself to you and hope you wanted to be part of my crew and I hope that I can help you find some of the amazing moments that come about on this journey once you take off that place that's keeping you stuck that thing that's stopping you from dealing with the things that are really the problem which are often things in our lives that you know we may feel that we don't have very much control over but let's work through this together all right my loves thanks so much for listening and i'm looking forward to spending more time with you over the next few episodes all right bye thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of midlife af with emma gilmore If you enjoyed it, please share on Instagram for your friends and tag me at Hope Rising Coaching. If you want to help me grow the podcast, please review the episodes for me on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. If you would like to work further with me, please go to my website, www.hoperisingcoaching.com for my free and paid programs or email me at emma at hoperisingcoaching.com. Sending a massive cuddle to you and yours from me and mine. And remember to keep choosing you oh just before you go i'm running a three-day virtual retreat between the 24th and the 26th of october it's called change your relationship with alcohol in just three days without stopping drinking honestly you've got nothing to lose here's what's included it's daily live coaching from me a private facebook community to connect with others 
some in-depth content and some work examining your beliefs around alcohol. There'll be a con- accountability and daily reflections. All this for just seven bucks. Don't forget to sign up. The details are in the show notes or on my website, www.hoperisingcoaching.com. See you there.